Welcome to Writers on the Beat, where crime writers meet crime fighters. I'm your host, Gavin Reese, and I'm proud to be part of the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. Every episode of this podcast will bring in a variety of experts to help all writers incorporate more authentic cops, crime, and criminals in their stories. For this episode, debut author Cara Robertson steps into the interrogation room to clear up a few things about her writing and craft. Cara began researching the Lizzie Borden case as a Harvard undergraduate in 1990. She holds a Ph.D. in English from Oxford University and a Juris Doctorate from Stanford Law School. She's clerked at the Supreme Court of the United States, served as a legal advisor to the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia at The Hague, and she's written for various publications ever since. The Trial of Lizzie Borden, which just recently released, is a true story and is her first book. Welcome to Raiders on the Beat Car. It's always great to talk to another, uh, another investigator of sorts. Oh, thank you for having me. Now, I'm reading through your book, The, the Trial of Lizzie Borden Now, and it's a story that I only thought I knew. Uh, for readers who are new to this work, what do you want them to know about it? Well, it's the story of um, what was at the time a, a particularly notorious double murder uh, that happened on August 4th, 1892, in the then prosperous mill town of Fall River, Massachusetts, um, Andrew Borden, a prominent uh, local businessman, and his second wife, Abby, were found hacked to death in their home near the city center. It seemed to be the work of a madman. That was the first explanation. Uh, But for a variety of reasons, uh, suspicion soon centered on their daughter, uh, or on Andrew Borden's uh, daughter from his first marriage, Lizzie Borden. Uh, And that turned what had already been a front page story into uh, international news. Now, what first drew you to this story and inspired you to do all the research necessary to write this book? Well, I I suppose I've always been interested in in, um, what you might call great public trials, trials that Mm -hmm. that, um, attract, you know, what seemed to be an outsized amount of attention and seemed to um, uh, concern issues or at least have the subtext um, uh, be about... uh, you know the anxieties or the or the preoccupations of a particular era, and um, I liked the Gilded Age setting for that reason as well. Um, it has a lot of resonance for our own time, even though it was you know 125 years ago. Yes. And finally, you know, it's technically it's an unsolved mystery, so it's hard to resist something like that that's that's come down to us through the ages. Oh, and especially with your background in. In law, I think you, you know, have a, a very educated and very well-informed perspective on, on, I think, some of the things that were right or wrong or misguided or, or overly social about this and not necessarily just and legal. Yes. Uh, I think that you know, most people who've looked at this case, and, and there, has been all, there has been a lot written about it, mm-hmm. um, uh, have focused on the murders and not so much on the trial itself. Um, and I thought I was well suited uh, by background and temperament to, to wade through the transcripts and all the other um, legal proceedings uh, and take a look at you know what I thought was uh, lying behind the case. And I, I would expect too that with as much time and emotional energy and personal investment as, as you've made in this, there had to have been some really late nights and some really frustrating moments when you're sitting there just overwhelmed by by what happened and what was allowed to happen 
Uh, yeah, I think I think the distance, um, the historical distance, mm-hmm. uh, uh, helps in that regard. You know, in terms of the um, uh, emotional part of it, uh, though. You know, at base, this is the story of uh, two elderly people who were who were um, killed in their home in a particularly gruesome way. So, uh, it's hard not to be um, affected by that, particularly when when studying the details of the murders. And I think readers, especially you know, in the the current environment, are really fascinated with true crime and also with um, you know injustice. And, and this story has both of those. Um, how does one go about writing potential historical wrongs, especially this far in the distance? Yeah, I um, I think my approach was maybe a little bit different in that in that what I wanted to do was uh, set out the story uh, as fairly and completely as possible, mm-hmm. um, which meant sticking you know really sticking to the facts. Uh, fortunately, there is this enormous amount of material, and there is a lot of um, colorful uh, material from the papers, some of which is accurate and some of which is not so accurate. Yes. Uh, it was um, the era of what we now call yellow journalism uh, and uh, a sensational murder story like this really drove up circulation. So um, all of the uh, most prominent reporters and columnists of the era were dispatched to cover the trial. Uh, and they give you a good sense of not just what's going on inside the courtroom while court is in session, but also how the audience of the court house is reacting and also uh, what the opinions of the people on the street are. Um, and so then that gives us, um, I think, as readers, access to this historical case in much the same way as we would experience it today, particularly if we think about this case as being something like the O.J. Simpson trial of its day. Yes. You know, that it commanded that level of attention and discussion um, and that uh, opinions were as uh, deeply divided, sometimes within households. Yeah, it was the certainly the trial of that century, yeah. Yes. Now, with something, uh, my personal perspective, I guess, is that, you know, the the law, whether it's on the the – the, the, the early, you know, police intervention side or the, the, when it comes to trial or when a case comes to trial, that our, our legal system is, is a reflection, right, of our, our current um, attitudes or current philosophies as a, as a culture and as a, as a people, whether we like to, you know, admit that or consider that or not. And I wonder, as you were going through this, um, how much you saw about how our legal system has changed and shifted with, with cultural norms and values um, and evolved over time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's an important point. Uh, and I mean, what you see in this case is, is um, a system that really was not prepared to confront the kind of defendant uh, who presented herself in this case, you know, that, that Lizzie Borden was someone who, who ticks all the nor the boxes of middle-class, mm-hmm. uh, respectable, uh, feminine virtue. Uh, she's, a active in her local church. She's even a Sunday school teacher. Uh, and she just doesn't seem like the sort of person who, according to criminological theories of the day, certainly, mm-hmm. but also just according to, um, expectations of female behavior. She doesn't seem like the sort of person who would uh, pick up a hatchet and 
and uh, kill her father and stepmother in such a brutal way. Uh, and so I suppose that, you know, in the last 125 years, we, we have slightly different views of what women might be capable of, too, and what people who seem perfectly normal might be capable of. Um, but it, I think it remains the part of the story that's, that's hardest to grapple with, even in this day and age. Yes, I, I think there is something really comforting about the false idea that we would know if someone was a killer or a really sadistic individual. Uh, when our misunderstanding of that reality confronts us, I, I think it's a very tough thing for us to wrestle with even today, right? You know, we don't want to admit that you know we might have had a conversation with Ted Bundy and not realized who he was, and you know, until we saw him on TV and in, in, in his trial. And I wonder. Um, or I guess I, I should say, I kind of expect that a Lizzie Borden trial today would be just as sensational and attention grabbing as it was at the time. I think so too. You know, I've, I've often had people say, well, what if uh, some of the rulings that went Lizzie Borden's way had, had gone the other way and said that there was stronger evidence at the trial or, or, you know, what if we had modern forensics and, uh, there was a better blood link somehow microscopically. These are all, these are all suppositions. There's no, um, as I say, the case is technically unsolved in that, in that Lizzie Borden was acquitted yes. uh, and no one else was, um, you know, a viable suspect. But, but I mean, I agree with you that I think, um, I think the idea of this, of this uh, woman who sat in the courtroom for two and a half weeks uh, and seemed perfectly normal Mm-hmm. Um, the idea that she would have, she could have done something like that. I mean, it might have been expressed in terms that, you know, we would find a little bit uh, naive today. You know, this this idea that there was something particular in uh, a middle class female nature that made it impossible. Um, we might not accept that part of it, but but I think we'd we'd be just as um, uh, troubled by the the figure of uh, this, you know, normal woman mm-hmm. uh, accused of such heinous crimes. Yeah, and I think you know it, it definitely is reminiscent of you know the uh, Jody Arias's, the the Casey Anthony's, some of those cases that even today we really wrestle with. How is this possible? You know, there I think are still certain um, stereotypes or platitudes that we, that we expect or don't believe, you know, a, a, a woman is capable of, or, or could crimes that they could commit. And that's still, um, uh, maybe something we, we desperately wish were true. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And in Elizabeth Borden's case, uh, I mean, not to, you know, non-spoiler alert, I don't know <laughs> the case, <laughs> but, uh, to to steal you know perhaps a bit of suspense she is you know she is a, she's acquitted um I, I did say that before mm-hmm. so we know that she led uh you know essentially a normal life beforehand and and then she led uh you know a relatively long life afterwards um you know 30, 30 odd years before and afterwards uh during you know which time nothing like this was ever suspected so um we have that conundrum and really stark relief in her case. Mm-hmm. Most of the advice that, that writers get usually starts with writing what you know. And as we've discussed, you know, you certainly have uh, a tremendous amount of knowledge about criminal law. I wonder how 
you went about crafting this nonfiction to make sure that it didn't read like a textbook. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you for thinking it doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> no, thank you for not writing one. I, I've read enough text over my life. I, I want to read narrative nonfiction. This is fantastic. Yeah. 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 Well, thank you. Um, I think that uh, it's important um, to just, I, I think to translate what, you know, what uh, interests, oneself about the story right you think about you think about what you know what grabs you by the story and you can you can make it sound like it's an argument i mean i can tell you that there's an argument at the at the root of that which is that um you know that that ultimately uh the jury couldn't believe that someone like lizzie borden um uh could have committed such a crime regardless of whatever the evidence was but you know that's uh, that's just a point. That's not a story. Right. Um, and so you need to know uh, the background of the of the uh, town, because uh, the, the town is itself sort of a character. Mm-hmm. Um, and the uh, story of, of the twists and turns of the case, I think that's what makes it interesting. And also for me, I was fortunate in that, um, although, of course, I'm interested in the in what we call the cold record, <laughs> just the transcript. I mean, it, that's perfectly riveting to me. I know that for most people, uh, it, it's much more interesting if you if you can um, talk about what's actually going on uh, in the courthouse at the time that people are testifying um, and what might be the back, backstage uh, goings on um, in the prosecution and the defense, and so fortunately, I was able to get access to um, a number of those uh, legal papers, and then also um, because, as I mentioned, this is the O.J. Simpson trial of its day. It's covered in it's covered in every major paper, and the columnists who write about it or the reporters who are dispatched to it don't. Well, and we just had audio disappear again. So if you can hear me right now, Cara, I can't hear you. Well, now at least we have the uh, I noticed that the internet has become unstable where I am. So at least that's positive that we know the reason. I really should get the uh, the sound of silence and just play it when when these things happen. <laughs> yeah. okay. There we are. So that we know we know yes. whether it's a dramatic pause or the yes. or a connection. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so um, last thing you you were that I heard on the recording was um, that you were talking about that this was covered by all the papers and that there would have been or there was this a lot of uh, research material available. That's right, and I and one of the things that became interesting to me um, were the personalities of the reporters involved, mm-hmm. uh, many of whom had covered other trials um, or who were involved in important stories of the day. And for that reason, some of them had memoirs, so you could get a sense of what their personalities were like uh, outside this particular case. And I think it just makes for a more vivid um, account. Yeah, I think that you know one of the things is. Uh, 
in telling these kind of historical stories is really looking at the the culture, the society, the the paradigms uh, of the time, and and as you mentioned, the personalities of the journalists. All those things so heavily weigh into that. I, I unfortunately see a lot of a lot of parallels between the area of yellow journalism and, and what passes for journalism today in the 24-hour news cycle, where I think we're much more concerned about um, about ratings and advertising than than disseminating facts and letting people draw their own conclusions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that that what we might think of as is the battle between that uh, what they called the um, almost the character-driven model of journalism and the um, information model mm-hmm. um, is very much contested at that at this particular moment of the trial uh, that the trial occurs in. Uh, and so you see some of the tensions that you're alluding to um, so that, uh, you know, certain things are rendered a lot more sensationally than perhaps you might And the sound of silence plays on. I, I'm going to owe you a tremendous apology before this thing is over, Cara, because normally... The, you know, our equivalent would be the, as you say, the cable news mm-hmm. talking head. Um, Are we back? Uh, okay. Over? <laughs> yep. Um, yeah, this is no. This is this is terrible. I apologize. Um, it's extremely rare that this uh, this platform has this many issues. Um, the the uh, one of the primary focuses of of this podcast is to help writers compose more authentic, you know, cops, crimes, and criminals in their stories. And mm-hmm. to me, there's a tremendous amount of overlap between investigators and and attorneys. And so I wonder whenever I have an, another investigator on, on the show uh, or one that loses a bet and is forced to be interviewed here. Um, <laughs> if uh, I, I always try to squeeze a personal story out of them, usually about how their career has changed their perceptions or, or kind of some, some rookie mistakes that they might've made early on and can't live down in, in certain, you know, inside professional circles. <laughs> I, I wonder if there's, you know, one, uh, if there's a one-off story that you're willing to to share about something that you would do differently today than you did when at the time. Hmm. Uh, yeah, I, I fear that there are many things. <laughs> um, <laughs> so probably difficult to choose. Um, but the thing that strikes me is, uh, as we, you know, based on our discussion, um, is something that's not uh, exactly an answer, but um, it does get at the same point. Um, I, uh, I worked for the uh, International Criminal Tribunal um, uh, in the former Yugos- for the former Yugoslavia, um, which is the UN War Crimes Tribunal. Um, and I had already uh, been thinking about uh, Lizzie Borden for some time before then. Uh, and you know, one of the things that that really interested me was this was this idea of, of you know an enigmatic person, onto whom you project. You, you see in the trial that the, both the defense and the prosecution are projecting their own um, images of the type of woman she is. But there's very little evidence from her of of uh, her own mouth 
um, uh, of you know her essential character. I mean, I I had was able through research to find out a little more later, but but I, I mean, I I often think of her as this as this um, enigma, mm-hmm. bit of a cipher, you know, onto whom onto whom these representations um, are placed. Uh, but as we discuss, one of the things that that uh, you know is so troubling is the idea that these you know that ordinary people, ordinary seeming people, can be uh, um, guilty of really mm-hmm. horrible things. Uh, and so, you know, if your if your work is in war crimes or crimes against humanity, uh, and you see the defendants. Mm-hmm. Uh, close up. Yes. Um, it's hard not to be struck by that. Um, you know, I felt, I felt this is a problem for me in, in thinking about how to write the book a lot more before that than afterwards. You know, I'm, I'm less, uh, I would say I find it less surprising that someone could do something so horrible, particularly when you think about the tensions in the house and all the sort yes. of specific motivations um, and then just go on to live an ordinary life. And, and you mentioned the, the war crimes tribunal in, uh, in the former Yugoslavia. And uh, I guess uh, the only experience I have that, that is somewhat relatable to that, I, I visited uh, Dachau, the, the concentration yeah. camp, uh, a number of years ago. And I didn't realize until, you know, we were, planning the, that particular trip that the Dachau was really the, the name of the suburb, the little town that it, the concentration camp was in, not just the camp itself. And mm-hmm. so we uh, took a, a bus from, from uh, Munich to Dachau. And when we got off the, the bus, it was, you know, late March, early April. Um, sun is shining, birds are singing, you know, a beautiful day in Germany. And we walked through the gates and everything just became dead silent. Like mm-hmm. birds were not there. There was no wildlife. It was just this feeling of, of horror and death that I've never experienced since. And, and really can't, I don't think explain. I think it's one of those things that has to be experienced that you can't convey with words. Um, but I, I would kind of expect that at some, at some level, your, your work over in the former Yugoslavia would have had to have, resemble that in some way that, you know, there's this tremendous dichotomy of the, the person who's sitting there on trial and the person, you know, you see presenting themselves to the court and then the record of what they did. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, um, the courthouse, the, the court itself was in the Hague, you know, so that, so that you have a little bit of that experience of this, uh, you know, very pretty old Dutch city, you know, where yes. people are bicycling to work and then you go <laughs> into the building uh, and my office just happened to be um, near where the witnesses um, were uh, kept before they um, were taken in to testify. Uh, so, I, I, uh, although, you know, in some respects, as a lawyer, you're very removed from the, the, the true trauma of, mm-hmm. of those kinds of events or the true horror of it, you know, you, you have it in writing, you have the testimony of, um, of witnesses, but you're not, um, you're not, you know, at the site or anything investigating. Uh, but to, you know, to, to, to see, to be in the same 
areas, the witnesses, and then to go into the um, courtroom and, you know, sit 10, 20 feet away from Milosevic, mm-hmm. for example, wow. um, yeah. uh, is, uh, it's, it, it is, as you say, it's an experience, it's an experience that's kind of hard to put into words, but, yes. but, um, it does change your perspective on, um, what people might be capable of and how, how easily they might live with mm-hmm. things that are pretty, yeah. uh, horrifying. Now, your your personal experience with working over at the Hague, but also at, for a time, you know, at the at the Supreme Court, I would imagine among attorneys that kind of has to make you a pretty big rock star, like the maybe the equivalent of a, a SWAT team among attorneys. Um, <laughs> if if a writer wanted to compose a fictional Cara Robertson as one of their protagonists, what would you most like to see them get right about? Um, and, and a, a fictional attorney with with your kind of rock star experience. Uh, oh my goodness. Um, uh, I think uh, it's well as you as you say the, the rock star part. Uh, it, it's easy to overestimate the glamour, uh, <laughs> and it's really it's really um, about being um a careful mm-hmm. researcher uh and having a good grounding um or a completely thorough grounding in all of the facts uh before you even think about what sort of an argument you're going to make uh and then um and then also the careful uh refining of your point so as I say, it's it's probably a lot less glamorous as actually lived. Just you probably the fictional Cara Robertson would be uh, doing a lot of uh, reading, and then writing and crossing things out, and then rewriting and <laughs> reading some more, and then crossing things out. And so I, <laughs> I'm not sure that that uh, you want to make her the uh, central figure in anything. Yeah, it's uh, really is a lot a lot of analogy with real life cop work and the police procedurals that leave out the ninety eight percent of sheer boredom and they only write about the two percent that's absolute terror. Right, right. Yeah, I can I can only imagine what the what the um, the real life part is, and you know I think it's it's another case where uh, I, I mean not for you since you're you know you actually had this experience, but for me. Um, uh, you know, so much of my idea of, of what it means to be a police officer is shaped by, you know, what I've read and seen on television and I, uh, or in the, in the movies, but, um, and you, you know, it might be amused to know that, uh, last night I was to relax. I was watching a, uh, Perry Mason rewrite. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, yeah. um, uh, what I was struck by was, well, I mean, one, of course it's absurd because, uh, Perry Mason solves every single case, uh, and the person almost always confesses. Yes, you know, typically on the stand, broken down by his <laughs> uh, brilliant cross examination. But uh, but there are you know, but there are a number of procedural things that they do get right, mm-hmm. um, yes. uh, which is pretty interesting too. Uh, I don't know. I think it's I think it's that the, uh, the I think our idea of, of um, you know, what constitutes a, um, a heroic figure is very, 
um, formulaic so that yes. so that it's hard. We, we, what they don't show is all the work that's be, that goes behind whatever the moment is um, that inspires the story. Well, kind of an interesting to me tangent is uh, my love of Columbo. And uh-huh. I absolutely appreciate how authentic that show is. And, you know, there's a whole lot of behind the scenes, a whole lot of legwork that, that takes place getting to, you know, that confession, that, you know, cross-examination inside the home where where the, the suspect is confronted with all their wrongs finally. Um, but I, and I've been trying to figure this out for a few years now, um, but I can't get in touch with anyone who's, who knows anything about the, the writers on the show beyond just some, some basic bio stuff on online. Um, but I actually used Columbo as a training tool when I was training other cops on how to, uh, how to effectively interview and interrogate because his style was so non-confrontational mm-hmm. and, you know, he did such an excellent job of, you know, especially with suspects um, that, uh, you know, he gets to the end and, you know, just one more question. And then it's the, that one thread that unravels the whole show. And, uh, you know, I think it was a, a really fantastic case of either some really well-educated cops informing art or as it turns out with me, probably art informing a, a, a police career. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's uh, I you know I imagine it's it's both um, mm-hmm. in these kinds of cases is that is that you know we're all so affected by uh, or we're all rather shaped by the by the things that we've grown up with or seen or been inspired by. Um, it's probably hard to trace back, uh, you know, the exact origin of it. Uh, beyond writing and the law, what what are you passionate about? What else gets you out of bed in the morning and moving with a purpose? Uh, well, um, <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, I, yeah, I, 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 I'm worried that I wandered over to talk to Oprah. <laughs> <laughs> but I appreciate the, I appreciate it's a good, no, it's a good, um, important question. I just wasn't, wasn't thinking about it. Um, uh, well, I'm, and again, now I do sound like I'm speaking to Oprah, but you know, I'm, I'm very grateful that I get to do this. Uh, uh, and that's mostly what I think about. Um, uh, and, uh, uh, you know, again, to think about uh, or to refer rather to the um, kinds of experiences I've had in the law. Uh, you know, you can uh, you can see that the circumstances in which many people live are are um, incredibly uh, challenging and yes. deforming. Or, and so, uh, I'm grateful that that. Uh, that you know, I don't, I don't have to confront those. Uh, you've already mentioned Perry Mason. I, I wonder if there's uh, a favorite fictional investigator you have in, in books, TV, or film. Hmm. Uh, well, I, I'm a, I'm fond of the of um, what you know, what you might call golden age mm-hmm. uh, detection. Mm-hmm. Um, so everything from, you know, the more noir, uh, Chandler, you know, Philip Marlowe type, mm-hmm. uh, to, um, 
Agatha Christie, particularly, you know, Poirot and Marple. I, I find the, in particular, you know, they're at two poles. One is, um, one is obviously the grittiness, um, and I'm from Los Angeles originally, so that, you know, the, yes. the, the way in which you, it tells you about um, that era in LA is, is pretty interesting too. But of course, those stories are all, a, you know, he solves it, but it's all a mess. Um, yes. And uh, nothing, you know, it's, there's no happy resolution to it. it uh, and uh, so the appeal of the appeal of someone of like Poirot or Marple is that is that um, order is restored. Uh, you know, there is a solution, and uh, at and the um, you know the village goes back, goes back in in a sense to normal. Yes, I mean it, it, it's. I suppose you could say that the that you know part of what appeals to me is that is that all of the secrets of the village are exposed in a way that um, suggests that it's not as perfect as you might think, which which is ties in again to what we we're talking mm-hmm. about when you see the this defendant who presents this uh, you know image of normality, but at least superficially you you have the sense that it's uh it's tidied up um and that justice mm-hmm. served yeah, and so although that's very difficult to achieve in life um it is that's quite appealing no god forbid it should happen but i i ask this of all the the authors who come on the show car but and based on that last answer but god forbid it should come to pass but if you were to wake up tomorrow and find yourself murdered what fictional investigator, assassin, or revenge artist would you want on the case? <laughs> uh, yeah, I definitely want Miss Marple on the case. <laughs> <laughs> I think uh, you were her first vote, so that that gets her on the uh, on the investigators board. Oh, really? Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah who but, do? May I ask you who do who do people normally choose? Um, well, it's, there's a whole lot of, uh, Marlowe, a whole lot of Raymond Chandler. Um, mm-hmm. lately there's been a trend to create a task force of guys like Sherlock Holmes and Mitch Rapp, just to ensure oh. we have a competent investigator and someone who's just going to get them killed. Um, if they get away, um, <laughs> so apparent, apparently writers are unwilling to allow their death to go unavenged. Unavenged. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think Miss Marple can handle it. Um, I sus- I suspect that um, that you know it won't be some international uh, drug cartel or anything. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's much more likely to be a neighbor, or yes, relative. Now, where can readers connect with you? Uh, find your works. Maybe get updates on on uh, any works in progress or any upcoming releases you have. Uh, uh, the publisher has a website that's. Um, trial of lizzie borden.com all uh all together no space <laughs> is that the right way to put it fantastic i really appreciate your time cara and sharing your expertise i'm really glad you put this book together oh well it's my pleasure and i really enjoyed our conversation you've been listening to writers on the beat where crime writers meet crime fighters a copyrighted broadcast of the authors on the air global radio network I'm your host, Gavin Reese, and this episode's guest has been attorney and debut author Cara Robertson. Until next time, take care of yourselves and each other. Be safe out there.